So the painting you're, you're looking at that uh, Ron has got up is by an artist named Jacques-Louis David. It's called The Death of Socrates. And it, uh, in, in, in the painting, the artist depicts the Greek philosopher Socrates and his final moments uh, as told by his student Plato. So if you know the story, Socrates has been convicted by an Athenian jury of corrupting the youth and of Athens and introducing strange new gods. And he has now been sentenced to death by drinking hemlock. And as this moment approaches, every, you can see in the painting, everyone around Socrates is in emotional distress. The, the young man that's handing Socrates the cup of hemlock can't bear to look, and so he, he turns away. One man in the painting buries his head in a wall in the background as another buries his head in his hands. The distress and sorrow and grief of those around Socrates is clear. But not Socrates. You see Socrates in the middle. He is dressed in a white robe. He's sitting upright in the bed. He's holding one finger up as if on these final moments he's going to teach his followers a lesson. And he's totally calm. Rather than recoiling from the cup that is being extended out to him, Socrates actually reaches for it. He is calm and stoic in the face of death. You can take that painting off now, Ron. I did a quick search of paintings depicting Jesus at Gethsemane, and there are plenty out there. Many of the, them have showed Jesus with a pretty serene look on his face. He's lifting his, high, his hands to heaven. Sometimes there's light streaming on him. Others portray Jesus with an angel right by him, comforting him. And, and in Luke's account, he tells about an angel. But none of the ones I saw seem to fully capture the scene as the writer Mark paints it for us. See, in our passage today, it can almost seem like Mark is painting a picture. He's painting a scene that maybe we weren't supposed to see. That, that maybe this, this shot in Gethsemane was never intended for our eyes. See, Christians from the very beginning have struggled with this passage. They've struggled with this scene. They've they found, uh, some have found this portrayal of Jesus in the garden uh, offensive. Some have found it embarrassing. Some have found it at odds with this understanding that Jesus was free from inner toil, that Jesus is one who, who cannot suffer, as the early Christian theologian Ignatius said. We today might look at this scene, and, and if we, we think about it, we might ask the question, if we allow ourselves to, did Jesus lose his nerve the 11th hour. It's hard to imagine a scene that is more at odds with the painting of Socrates. As I said, Socrates reaches for the cup. In this passage, Jesus asks that the cup be taken from him. Socrates is stoic in the face of death. His followers are falling apart, but he is stoic. And in our scene in Gethsemane, Jesus is the one in anguish while his followers sleep. What exactly is happening in Gethsemane? What does this have to say to us? Before we look at this question, I want to set the scene for us. As we saw last week, Jesus and his disciples have just celebrated Passover in the city of Jerusalem. They've now gone east of the city into a place called Gethsemane. It's the middle of the night now. 
it's probably nearing midnight. Uh, those all over Jerusalem, the pilgrims, uh, they're remembering how at midnight in Exodus, we, we read that that is the time when God struck down the Egyptians and delivered the Israelites. And Passover, as we've talked about, is freedom time. It's a time of year when hopes are raised of a, new, of a Messiah, of a new deliverance from foreign oppression. And as this Passover this year comes and goes with no clear evidence of deliverance, there's probably the comments all over Jerusalem that are said in the, that often in the meal, maybe next year. Maybe next year. Maybe next year will be the year of deliverance. Gethsemane is on the side of the Mount of Olives. The, the word Gethsemane in Hebrew means olive press. They're, they're likely in this grove of olive trees. As I said, it's night. Not only is it night, it's, uh, it's Passover, and Passover follows. It, it's celebrated at the first full moon following the vernal equinox. Uh, so actually, I think we had a full moon yesterday here. If the night is clear, the light streams through. So probably this olive garden has, is lit up with a full moon. And it's quiet. It's probably literally quiet, but, but I want you to notice that the story has seemed to quiet it down as well. It seems like our story has paused for a minute. Like we can, as the reader, catch our breath before we rush to the climax of this gospel. It's as if in the silence of the night, uh, the awareness and the gravity of what is about to happen to Jesus catches up with them. And it sends a shudder of horror racing through his body. Jesus has dropped off eight disciples. He has gone a little farther and he's taken with him the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They must be within earshot of Jesus. These are the men, if you remember in our, in our Gospel of Mark, they were, they were there when, when Jesus raised that little girl from the dead, the daughter of Jairus. These were the three guys who got to go up on the mountain and watch Jesus transfigured before them. And they, they're the ones that got to hear the voice from the cloud, the voice of God come down. And now it is these three that will witness Jesus in anguish. It is these three that will hear the words, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Maybe you remember a time in your life when a strong person, maybe the strong person in your life, suddenly became weak. Maybe it was the, the time that person who, who acted as the rock of your life that nothing seemed to phase them suddenly fell apart. Maybe it was uh, as a kid and you walked into the kitchen one night and your dad was at the kitchen table he was crying. He realized there was no way he could keep the farm or the family business afloat. Maybe it was when your mom, who, who was always the one that was the caregiver, that was always caring for others, fell ill. And now the, the caregiver becomes the one in need of care. Maybe it was a, a tragedy that struck a minister, a pastor at your church, and, and, and he or she was the one who normally uh, helped people in the congregation navigate these hard questions that arise amidst tragedy. But now he or she is asking those questions themselves. How could God let this happen? See, there's something, there's something jarring. There can be something even frightening when the person we look to to be strong all of a sudden seems weak. And see, up until this point in our story, Jesus has indeed looked very strong. He's looked ahead to Jerusalem. We've heard him predict this death now 
several times, and when he speaks about it, he speaks about it rather dispassionately, almost in a detached manner. It is not Jesus who struggles and is distressed by the idea of his death. It's actually his disciples who are always pushing against it. But the tables that here in Gethsemane have turned. Now the one that's always strong, always unshakable, the one, as we saw a few weeks ago, who leads the way, who charges the way up the mountain to Jerusalem, seems to be falling apart. I want you to see the raw, and the naked, and the unfiltered motion that is pouring out of Jesus. What on earth is happening in Gethsemane? See, when we think about the passion of Jesus, the, the suffering and death of Jesus, we often focus on the physical pain that he experienced. We think about the, the beating he received from the guards. We think about uh, a crown of thorns pressed into his head. We think about nails driven in his feet and his hands. We think about what it, what it would be like for under a slow, agonizing death from exhaustion and asphyxiation on a cross. We reflect on Jesus' physical anguish, less so the emotional anguish. And we see in this scene that Jesus is very clearly in psychological and emotional anguish. He is to such a point that he is so overwhelmed with sorrow, he's to the point of death. There's something about waiting. There's something about anticipation about what's to come that often makes a moment almost unbearable, even more agonizing sometimes than the actual moment that's coming. One of my favorite things in the world to do is to jump off the side of cliffs into bodies of water. Uh, as a kid, I jumped off cliffs into lakes and rivers in, in southwest Missouri. I, uh, I once got to jump off a cliff uh, into a fjord in Norway, into the chilly waters, and right next to it was an old pillbox that was set up in World War II by the Germans to fend off an ally attack. And my kids are now getting old enough that I can uh, expose them to the joys of jumping off cliffs into water. And last summer when we were in New York, Neva and Jude joined me on a couple of times. And the thing about jumping off a cliff is from down below, when you look up at the top of the cliff from the water, whether the distance is 20 or 30 feet or whatever, it doesn't look so bad. It's only after you climb up top and you get to the top of the cliff and you then peer down, that things get scary. That everything in your body, maybe no matter how many times you've done it, says, don't do this. That's the most agonizing moment. It's when you stand there at the edge of the cliff, and you look at the water below, and you anticipate the jump. It's usually way, way worse than whatever fear you experience during the jump and whatever you feel when you hit the water. And the thing is, the longer you stand at the top of that cliff, peering down at the cliff, thinking about the jump ahead, thinking about the drop, thinking about, am I going to get out far enough away from this cliff to hit the water? Thinking about, is the water deep enough? Is this safe? The more likely you're to lose your nerve. Back out. The fear and the dread and the anticipation becomes too much. That's why you just got to jump. Because the torture is in the waiting. We dread the onset of strain or danger or pain or hardship, even if we know it's for the best. It's why, uh, if you've done public speaking, it's why often your nerves and the butterflies in your stomach are, are most active that last minute 
before you stand up and make that speech. It's why uh, waiting for biopsy results and MRI reports and CAT scans can be so torturous. That's why the, the anticipation of a surgery can be worse than the actual surgery itself. Waiting can be torture. And at Gethsemane, Jesus waits. He waits for the hour to draw near. He waits for his betrayer to come. He waits to be delivered. And while we can mostly just speculate on why it is that Jesus is having such intense agony, we know, we can see that Jesus is stretched to the limit. He has reached a breaking point at the horror of what lies ahead of him. And his distress drives him to the ground. Go back in your mind to the painting that I just showed you depicting the death of Socrates. I ask you the question, is there anything in that painting with Socrates you can relate to? Can you relate to the stoicism on Socrates' face as he reaches for the cup and his imminent death? I don't know about you, but when I look at Socrates, there's almost nothing I can relate to. But look now at Jesus. Look at Gethsemane. Look at Mark's portrayal of Jesus at Gethsemane. He's overwhelmed with sorrow. He's deeply distressed. Emotion is pouring out of him. I, I think many of us, most of us can relate to that scene. I think most of us probably have an experience where we know, we feel like life has pushed us to a breaking point. That, that we have been stretched as far as we can go. And maybe it even happens in the middle of the night. Maybe it happens while you're lying in bed, and when you finally have that moment to catch your breath in the quiet of the night, and that's when the raw, and the naked, and the unfiltered emotions that have been dammed up inside of you all day burst out. Some of you might know the agony of what it feels like to be betrayed by someone close to you. I wonder, I wonder if Mark, when he was writing this gospel, I wonder if when he got to this scene, if he just stopped for a minute. I wonder if he stopped for a minute and he asked himself, do I include this? Do I, do I really want people to see this scene of Jesus, or should I cut this scene out? I don't know about you, I'm sure glad Mark didn't cut this scene out. Because Mark doesn't show a Jesus who, who is stoic and above the fray, who, who, who's above showing emotions. He doesn't show a Jesus that, that just suppresses whatever feelings and emotions and pain he's feeling. And Mark also shows us that Jesus is not marching indifferently to his death. Jesus is not some some person who's got something wrong in his head that is bent on self-destruction. Jesus' eyes are wide open to what is ahead. He, he, he like us, he has an amygdala. He has a region of his brain that, that, that fires off responses in the face of death. And when Jesus looks ahead to his impending death on the cross, he shudders. He shudders. In other words, Jesus is human, right? Which is what we profess. Orthodox theology professes that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. And if Jesus is not terrified by what is ahead, I don't think he sounds very human to me. 
not at least my experience of being human. Of course he's going to be in emotional distress. And that Jesus is in such emotional distress should come as a huge source of comfort to those of us who find ourselves in great pain, great sorrow, and emotional distress, and fearful of our own deaths. Jesus is our Savior, our Lord, he's our King. Guess what? He's also our brother. I don't know, I don't know what pain and emotional distress you might be feeling right now. And even if I did know, the reality is, as hard as I might try, I can't fully understand what you're feeling. But Jesus can. And when Jesus says, you know, I get it. I know what it's like. It's not some platitude. It's not some hollow words that often come out from people around you in midst of trial. Jesus actually knows what trial is like. When I look at Socrates, as brilliant as he was, and I'm sure glad I'm not a disciple of Socrates. I'm sure glad I'm a, a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. Because I think Jesus gets me, and I think Jesus gets you. The, and the fact that Jesus' soul shudders, the fact that he shrinks from the cross and all it entails, it doesn't take away from his sacrifice. It adds to the greatness of it. The fact that Jesus begs for the cup to be taken from him shows that he knows what is ahead. He knows how costly his death will be. Verse 35, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass him. Falling to the ground, prostate is not, is, is prostate is not the, uh, the normal po- posture for prayer. Usually one would, would, would lift their hands to heaven and pray in a standing posture. But if a person were in particular distress, they might lie prostrate and pray face down, as we see Jesus doing here. Jesus has literally been driven to the ground in sorrow and in prayer. I want you to look at the prayer. We're going to look at this. It's a short prayer, but we're going to look at it line by line, starting with verse 36. Jesus begins his prayer with Abba, Father. This is the only time we see this Aramaic word Abba used. Uh, it, it's, it's an intimate address. It's, uh, it's an affectionate address, it's, but it's also it's devotion and it's respect all in one. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. So Jesus begins his prayer in Gethsemane by naming his trust, his belief that everything is possible to the Father, for the Father. I know you can do all things. I know you can do all things. I want you to take this cup from me. We've we've talked about this word cup, and we've seen it uh, a number of times. Cup can signify a number of things in the Bible. Uh, Sometimes in the Old Testament, it means God's judgment. It can also be good things. In Psalm 23, we we read, my cup overflows, and we're talking about good things. Uh, It can can often just mean your lot in life. And, And for cup here, for Jesus, it seems to signify his death on the cross, the suffering and death on the cross. I want you to, we know this line, most of us. I want you to just think about this line for a second. Think about what Jesus is asking here. Let, let, this, let the gravity of this sink in. Jesus is asking the cup to be taken from him, meaning he's saying, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to go to the cross. All things are possible for you, meaning there might be another way. And Jesus might be thinking back. Jesus knew his, his, his scripture. He might be thinking back to a story long ago. He might be thinking back to another story about a father 
and a son, a father named Abraham who took his son, his only son, his beloved son Isaac, and he went up on a mountain. And on the way up the mountain, the young Isaac turned to his father and asked where the lamb for the offering was. And Abraham told him that God would provide that lamb. And sure enough, at the very last minute, at the very last second, knife raised in hand, God did provide the lamb. It's Friday, the middle of the night. There's still time to avert another sacrifice. Take this cup from me. And immediately after telling God his desire, the cup would pass, Jesus says, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see what's happening here? Jesus is petitioning the Father. He's making his request, but he's not just petitioning the Father. He's talking with God. He's wrestling with God. This prayer, of course, is quite short, but we know when Jesus goes back to his disciples, he, we find out he's been praying for an hour, then he goes back two more times. We know this must go on for a while. And there's, there seems to be this struggle that's happening, that Jesus uh, both expresses his desire to the Father for what he wants, and at the same time, Jesus is trying to align himself with the Father's will. He's wrestling. And at some point, the wrestling stops. At some point, Jesus discerns, the answer is no. The cup cannot pass. And notice, that's the moment when Jesus regains his composure. When he goes back to his disciples the last time, they've fallen asleep a third time, he says to them, let's go. See, Jesus, if you, if you notice, if you look at the trajectory of the prayer, Jesus begins the prayer overwhelmed and distressed and absolutely stretched to his limit. He's sorrowful unto death. He emerges with the answer he did not want, composed. M. Scott Peck writes this, Once suffering is completely accepted, it ceases, in a sense, to be suffering. Once suffering is completely accepted, it ceases, in a sense, to be suffering. I, I think there's some truth to that. It's not that suffering is pleasant. It's not that it goes away when it's accepted. But there does seem to be some shift when suffering is accepted. And you and I, we have no idea what it's like to struggle with the temptation not to be the savior of the world. We have no idea what that's like. That's Jesus' temptation alone. But I know what it's like to want to avoid pain and suffering. I, I, I think you do too. And most of us probably know, we probably remember a time when we feel like God was calling us to something that we didn't want to go to, that we didn't want to do. I had a experience one time of feeling like I was almost like a struggle with God, that I was in this kind of wrestling match uh, with God about something I was trying to discern. And when I first got this sense that maybe God was leading me in a direction I didn't want to go, I, I found myself wanting to move away from God. See, I didn't, want to, I didn't want to even really talk to God in prayer because I thought that space opened up space for God to tell me something that I didn't want to hear. But then that drove me away from God, and that left me unsettled. And so I began to engage with God again. I began to, to dialogue and to wrestle with God about this question that I was trying to discern. I was trying to figure out, am I hearing this word from you? Am I being neurotic? 
Am I hearing this word from Satan? Where is this word coming from? It's not always easy to discern a word from the Lord. And one day, after probably two weeks of this, I finally felt like I'd gotten a clear word from God. It was not the word I wanted. But it was also at the very same moment, one of the first times in weeks, I felt peace. Peace finally emerged out of that struggle of trying to discern God's will. And also the acceptance that maybe that my desire in that case was not God's will. In Matthew and Luke, we, we hear Jesus give some very explicit teaching on prayer through what we call the Lord's Prayer. We don't have that. Mark doesn't tell us about the Lord's Prayer, but we get the prayer in Gethsemane. And I think this prayer has so much to teach us as followers of Jesus about prayer. So I want to I point out a few things here. Look, first we see that, this, that, that Jesus is driven to, to prayer. So it can be easy to miss this, but there's actually two trials happening. There's Jesus' trial and temptation to say no to the cross, but, but Jesus' disciples are in a time of temptation and trial too, right? They, they all, in our last passage last week, have told Jesus they're never going to disown him, that they're going to be with him to the end, and yet, at the end of the passage, Sherry read, they're all gone. One guy's fleeing naked. They all deserted Jesus. What had Jesus been telling them to do? Pray. When he came back and found Peter and James and John sleeping, he said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And they, they do fall into temptation. See, when we as followers of Jesus, when we think it's all up to our own power to resist temptation, that's, that's oftentimes when we get into trouble. See, instead of, instead of praying for the Spirit of God to empower us, in prayer, engaging, we, we rely on our own powers and we have a, have a tendency to fall like the disciples did. We collapse like they did. So the first thing I think we, we model with Jesus is that trial and sorrow drives us to prayer. But here's the challenge. Oftentimes, in the midst of trial and tragedy, we don't, it's hard to pray. It's hard, not, maybe not for everyone, but for a lot of us, that's the moment where we actually don't want to pray. And it doesn't seem like prayer is going to help us. And I heard, a, there's a preacher named John Mark Comer, and I heard him once in a podcast share about a prayer he calls the Gethsemane prayer that I'm going to share with you that I really like. It's, it's modeled after this prayer that Jesus does. And I think it, uh, it gives us a template, Jesus gives us a template to, to, to pray and open ourselves up to God in moments of sadness, in moments of trial, um, in moments when maybe we just don't know what to say. It's, it's a prayer you can use in times where you think, I, don't, I have this desire, and I don't know if this desire is good. I don't know if this desire is bad. So there's three things that we see that Jesus does here in the prayer. Okay? There's three things I want you to notice that Jesus gives to God in the prayer. He, first, he gives his feelings. Second, he gives his desires. And third, he gives his trust. If you want to write those down, if you're taking notes. First, he gives his feelings. Second, he gives his desires. And third, he gives his trust. First thing, as I've said, we've seen in Jesus raw, unfiltered emotional pain pouring out of him. Jesus is in touch with his emotional pain. Uh, the sadness, the fear, the sorrow. He, he, he's in touch with that, and it's coming out. It's expressed. I want you to see that Jesus is not repressing what he's feeling. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't try to give himself some kind of pep talk 
with some positivity training and say just, hey, you just need to snap out of this and, and this is going to be all right. No, no. He lays out his emotion bare. He gives it to God. He first, he gives God his feelings. And the first thing you can do in these moments is just tell God how you're feeling. Tell God how you're feeling without that filter and that edit function that for so many of us wants to immediately go out. We're, we're almost scared to say how we're really feeling. Again, Jesus models for us, no, no, that's okay. That's good. Okay, second thing, Jesus gives God his desires. Jesus prays to the Father, take this cup from me. Mention this cup, your allotment in life, but also often suffering. Uh, and, And as we've talked about, Jesus in this request, in this petition, seems to be asking God not to go to the cross. And I I get it. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that makes some of us a little uncomfortable. But I'm telling you, that's what makes Jesus human. Because he expresses how he actually feels. And his desire is not to go to the cross. And some of you today, I am pretty sure, are struggling with a cup that seems like too much. That seems like your allotment in life is stretched to you as far as you can go. And that cup might be physical pain. Uh, that cup might be a health condition. You just so badly wish you could snap your fingers and it would go away. That uh, might be some emotional pain in your family. You might be a caregiver and you feel like, I'm a caregiver and I am stretched to the absolute max. I'm exhausted. And God, I want you to take this cup from me. Some of you might just have a desire and you just don't know if that desire is good or bad. Like, I, 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 I'm thinking about taking this new job. I have this desire for this new job. I don't know if I should do it. I don't know if that desire is good or bad. Or we may, this is a little harder, we may have a desire that we actually know is not a good desire. We're pretty sure this is actually a sinful desire. And so we can do one of two things. We can pretend that that desire is not there. We can hide it away, give it more power, or we can name it to Jesus. We can say, look, I get this is a sinful desire, but this is my desire. See, Jesus teaches us. He doesn't filter his desires. He doesn't beat himself up for even having these desires. He gives the desire to God and thereby gives us permission to give our desires to God. So second thing, give your desires to God. Um, Finally, Jesus gives God his trust. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus gives his feelings to God. He gives his desires to God. And finally, Jesus gives God his trust. Jesus has a desire for the cup of suffering and death to pass. But Jesus has an even stronger desire to do the will of the Father. And he can do that because he trusts the Father. In Jesus' case, we don't, again, we're speculating on Jesus' fears and everything, but Jesus is about to die. Is he going to be abandoned by the Father to the grave? Yeah, we, yeah, we know that's not going to happen because we're on the other side of resurrection. Jesus is on that side of resurrection, of, of the cross. Is, is God going to abandon him to the grave? No, before he, he said, God's going to vindicate me. And because Jesus has trust in the Father, the Father will vindicate him. He can move now forward. In our case... We trust that Father is our Abba. Our Father is the one who loves us, who has our best interest in mind, even when we we don't feel it, we don't see it. 
And we trust that we can release ourselves to God and to his will. We often say this line in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But oftentimes, you know, it's hard to know what we're actually saying. See, and I think that we're getting to that, that, that line, I want what you will, but we're getting there after we've released to God, we've told God how we're feeling, we've told God our desires, and now after we've worked through that, we're saying, I'm going to trust you. So what I want to do to end this morning is in just a minute, I'll step down. I want you to hang with me, and we're going to take these last couple minutes to just practice this prayer. We're going to all guide you through these three steps. I just invite you to kind of maybe shift gears. I'll give you just a, a second to kind of pause your mind and pause your heart. We ask the Holy Spirit uh, to, to be with us here, to guide us, as you open your mind and your heart to soul to God in the Gethsemane prayer. So hang with me, and we'll pray this prayer. Take a moment and take a deep breath. Close your eyes. Begin your prayer by just telling God how you are feeling right now, today, or in this season of life. For some of you, that might be joy and hope. For others, that might be anger. That might be even numbness. It could be exhaustion. Some of you might feel like you really are in your Gethsemane moment. You're stretched to the limit. However you're feeling, tell God how you feel. Take a moment to give God your desires. This is your time to tell God what you want. Not what you think you should want, but what you actually want. This is a time for you not to edit or filter those desires. Some of those desires you may know are not the will of God. We're in a season of Lent. This can be an act of confession. You don't need to hide those desires from God. Some of you may have a desire. You're not sure it's good or you're bad. Or I'm sure it's good or it's God's will. Just give that to God. Some of you have desires. You're pretty positive or good, uh, but you don't understand why God has not granted you that desire. Give that to God. Now take a moment to give God your trust. Not what I will, but you will, what you will. Release yourself into your Abba Father, into your Creator, one who loves you, 
has your best interest in mind, even in times of pain and confusion. Yield your life and your desires to God. Receive God's peace. God, thank you for the Gethsemane prayer. Thank you for the Gethsemane scene. This scene that can at one, in one way seem terrifying, and yet, God, it is so uh, meaningful to see the human side of Jesus, to know that he is our Lord and our Savior, but he's also our brother. He knows what it's like to be in distress and pain have someone who walks with us through our own pain and our own suffering, our own questions of life, when our desires that we have are not realized. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that as he counted all the costs that were ahead of him in Gethsemane, that he still chose the cross, Lord. Such a great love, Lord, we, we barely understand. Thank you. I pray for each person in the congregation and listening right now, that they would uh, feel free to give you uh, their feelings and their desires, and ultimately, Lord, that we would give you our trust. Ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.